night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me this morning is Hillary Gam, tech insider and industry leader and author of Billions Lost, The American Tech Crisis and the Roadmap to Change. For over two decades, Hillary Gam has amassed a wide-sweeping professional portfolio at virtually all levels of the tech industry hierarchy. She pulls the curtain back on the destruction of the American technology industry in her extensively researched and apolitical Billions Lost explaining how the offshoring of millions of U.S. technology jobs has opened a gateway that places our economy, our national security, and our educational systems at risk. She succinctly explains the Y2K scare, visa reform, and other factors that snowballed into into today's crises and identifies the ramifications of outsourcing on our country and its profound impact on America's middle class. Welcome to the show, Hillary. Nice to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to speaking to you. Okay, well, this is a huge topic, and obviously you've been in the industry for well over 20 years, so you know all about it, and you're going to share your expertise with us. So where do we want to start? I mean, I guess the last sentence that I said, there's the ramifications of outsourcing uh, all of this technology uh, to other countries has had a profound impact on America's middle class. What does that mean? Let's start talking about that. All, you know, Maybe even t- give a sort of a general definition of what is all this outsourcing? Where is it going? What have we been doing for the past 20 years? Sure. Uh, so beginning in the 1990s, uh, many of America's corporations started sending technology jobs overseas. I think most Americans identify with help desk workers that potentially are from a foreign country. But what they neglect to understand is that, in fact, it's every single industry and all the tech jobs um, that you can possibly imagine. So it's not just help desk folks that are sitting offshore. Uh, Every industry in the United States, uh, whether it's high tech or insurance or healthcare or credit card companies or supermarkets or retail, they all have technology folks working offshore in another land. And uh, it's really left the door open for a lot of uh, risk mitigation on uh, the U.S. side. It, It puts our data and our technology at risk, it, it really, uh, because technology is in everybody's hands and runs so many aspects of our lives today, it really puts uh, the nation of the United States at risk when we have so much uh, tech know-how outside the U.S. and the data outside the U.S. Hillary, so then what happens? Let's take a specific industry. Maybe that makes it easiest for us to understand. Let's say you're outsourcing, you're talking about in the healthcare industry, and that puts our country at risk. Hold our hands. How does that how does that specifically impact on us? Okay, so in the healthcare industry within the United States, it's very regulated in terms of confidentiality and information. So HIPAA laws relate to, and when we go to the doctor or go see a care provider, we sign consent forms, right, about HIPAA, which has to do with who's allowed to see the information, who's allowed to share the information. What many Americans don't realize today is that all different healthcare companies across the U.S., I actually posted a blog about a company in Massachusetts called Partners, which is a healthcare company in Massachusetts. 
that is sending 100 IT jobs to India this year. So regardless of where they sit in the back office operations, the jobs get sent out of the country. The 100 positions that are leaving partners this year, uh, I believe, have to do with setting up the codes so that people can get care. So what happens is rather than Americans reviewing files within America and being constrained by the American regulations associated with privacy and data, the data and the process is done in another country, which means they're not necessarily protected by the HIPAA laws and the U.S. regulations. The data is physically stored in another country, and people outside the U.S. are looking at that data. And the physical location of where that data is stored and, and the access to it, again, is not as secure as if it was within the United States where that health data is protected by our laws. So that's an example. Did, does that make sense to you? That makes sense, yeah. So the ramifications of that, what you're saying is, like if this is being done in India or another country, for instance, they don't have the laws that, that protect us, our privacy like we do here. So in other words, we don't know who has access to our healthcare records and how right. they'll be used. Is That's what exactly. you're saying, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's also <laughs> not necessarily Americans who are reading the records and making the determinations. It's someone from a different culture with a different understanding uh, and so many times there's issues because there's, you know, people who are not familiar with U.S. rules, regulations, but also diagnoses and practices that are doing various different things uh, related to our health data. So we may be able to say, let's say we are applying for insurance and we don't realize that where we're applying for insurance may have information about us that would prevent us from getting insurance, health insurance. Or, for instance, if you are going in for a procedure and you're, when you go in for pre-screening, they have to fill out data in terms of what tests are needed, what diagnosis, how they're going to be reimbursed. If all of that work is done at a back office in a foreign country, mistakes can be made. So it seems like the short-term benefit where those foreign technology workers cost less to the healthcare company that's employing them. But the reality is, as many times there's quality issues, and then the patient potentially suffers because they're going in to have their procedure, and the paper, they get there, and the paperwork wasn't done correctly, and there's a problem with their claim, and then they're having to make, you know, umpteen phone calls, and it's all because the back office work wasn't done correctly. That's how the everyday consumer or customer suffers when we send so many technology jobs offshore in that in that healthcare uh, setting that you just explained. So as consumers, is there any way for us to, to mitigate this, to do something differently? It, it almost doesn't, it sounds like it's sort of an impossible task because these companies here in the United States, it must in the short term cut down on millions, if not billions of dollars uh, in, 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 in their businesses. So they're motivated to do that, to go and outsource uh, their technology. How do you, well, we'll stick with the healthcare industry and then we'll go on to a, a couple other industries, but what do you do about it? Can anything be done about it? Sure, of course. That's why I wrote the book, just to make <laughs> sure people understood what was going on and then give some ideas on how to, you know, make things better. So absolutely, we live in a capitalist democracy in the U.S., which is awesome. And um, because of that, because of that paradigm, 
you know, public companies uh, most specifically have a responsibility to their shareholders to return profit. And so they're going to look for the least cost, uh, you know, way to accomplish their goals, their corporate goals. However, when we look at Europe, right, they just passed laws related to data privacy, GDRP laws. And so all these tech companies and, and even in Australia, there's a, a huge set of laws related to health data that they pass that doesn't let any of their health data leave the confines of Australia, of that country. So the United States is far behind the global community in coming up with regulations and kind of an understanding of protecting our data which means protecting our privacy as citizens and protecting our rights. One of the things I recommend uh, in the book, the last chapter of the book, is the roadmap to change, where I you know, outline various different things that I believe that we can embrace as a nation to kind of you know, turn things around and get us on a more positive trajectory for our children and future generations and also for Americans today. So one of the very first things that I recommend in relation to stemming the, you know, constant wave of technology jobs leaving the U.S. has to do with just having every entity in the U.S. just report when they do their taxes how many foreign technology laborers they're employing, whether it's directly through a captive company that they own in a foreign country to do their technology work or whether it's through an outsourcer, a provider, a consulting company, a tech services company. So that at least we take the first step to understanding how many millions of jobs have left the U.S. Because since technology kind of sits in the back, it's a little less obvious how the industry has exited American shores. With car manufacturing and other manufacturing, it's a little easier to kind of see and understand, especially when the manufacturing facilities are so big and they're located in specific parts of the U.S., it's easy to see the decline of an of a actual physical location in terms of the economics. With technology, it, it's far harder to realize the dire ramifications it causes from an economic perspective, from a family perspective, from an education perspective. That's why I wrote the book. So from an economics perspective, if we just at least get Congress or the senators to pass some regulation, just at least asking for how many technology workers are being employed outside the U.S. to satisfy your company's uh, processes and requirements, that will be the huge first big step. Because once people see the huge numbers in the various different industries, then I think um, smart legislation could be put into effect to protect our privacy, protect our jobs, protect our future. Well, besides your book, Billions Lost, uh, how aware do you think the public is of this problem? It, do, it doesn't seem to be, seems to be, uh, to me anyway, somewhat on the back burner. I mean, if you ask uh, your, your average person, are they aware of this and the implications for this outsourcing? I don't think many people are aware of it or even have any idea how the whole, you know, how it impacts on us as a country. That's right. That's why I wrote the book. No one understands. Yeah. yeah, it's like one of those, I don't want to say secrets, but, you know, nobody understood what happened. In the 1990s, uh, people were really scared that when the clocks turned 2000, everything was going to get shut down. You know, no utilities. I wouldn't be able to get money out of the bank. They wouldn't be able to use, have water, electricity, anything. And because of that time, uh, all the laws were passed and the regulations changed to allow tech workers to come into the U.S 
domestic workers to come here to the U.S., at, you know, incredible numbers, but also to allow the technology work to leave the U.S. And that all happened in the 1990s, and for the past 20 years, we've seen incredible amounts of jobs leave the U.S. I get emails, I got an email yesterday, last night, from a gentleman in, in his uh, 60s who got laid off from a tech job, can't get rehired. Technology is an industry, right? When anyone's over 40, they have to have, it's almost near impossible for them to get a job in the U.S. in tech. So you have all these people who should be in the prime of their earning uh, time when they're in their, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s. Instead, they get laid off and that they, they then get replaced by labor outside the U.S. And for your listeners today to understand, that has significant ramifications. I'll give you a couple, if that's okay. Can I give you a couple? Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. So one is, there's this misconception about women in technology. Why are there so many less women in technology today than there were 20 years ago? Why are young girls not going into the technology field today like they were, they were 20 years ago? Well, I can tell you that women specifically, American women in technology, you know, their stories daily about them being harassed, them being demeaned, them being looked over for jobs, they're being replaced by foreign counterparts who come to the U.S., and they can't fit necessarily an EEOC, you know, an equal opportunity slot, and so, you know, they're not given opportunity. Well, what happens is their daughters don't want to become, go into the same profession or go into technology. At the same time, there's a lot of, I don't want to say male chauvinism, but not a lot of people who invest in the technology high-tech area that uh, are giving women opportunity there. And in the same time, and the most important reason, is it's not a good profession for moms. You know, about five years ago, six years ago, many of the high-tech companies in Silicon Valley indicated that they wanted all their workers to come back in-house rather than work remotely which is really a double standard because they have thousands of workers that work offshore in another country. They're remote, so it's quite unfair that they wouldn't let Americans work remotely but allow foreigners to work remotely. And what happened is it became very hard for women who want to take care of, you know, be a caregiver, whether it's children or elderly parents, to work and then also remain in the tech profession. And, you know, even stories about these tech executives who would write about how important it was to come in the office, and then they would write stories uh, for magazines about how they would leave their jacket on the back of their chair so people would think they were still in the office, but they really went home to take care of their children. So that kind of double standard really doesn't promote women in the tech field. And so we've seen a massive exodus. Women are not going into the field. They don't want to study it. And when we look at workers over the age of 40, there's significant ageism in technology. So this, there's this idea when 20-year-olds or 30-year-olds are interviewed for tech jobs that even if they don't have the right qualifications, they quote-unquote have potential. So even if they don't you know, check every box, they have potential so they can get hired. When you look at tech workers who are over 40, they never say they have potential. If they don't have every single possible requirement, they don't get hired for the jobs. Why is that? Because they can find replacements outside the U.S. Or they can hire consulting companies that will employ individuals outside the U.S. to take the jobs. And so because there's this easy substitute for American labor in the tech field, Americans are losing their jobs. 
and they're unable to be rehired. And this person I got the email from last night, 60 years old, he said, I couldn't pay someone to interview me to take a job. You know, I'm working now as a janitor because I know I can't go back into the tech field. It's impossible for me. And that's one of many, many emails I've received that all tell the same story. Well, as as someone who is a female and also over the age of 40, uh, and, and don't like to admit this, and this is sort of just on a personal level, but when you talk about tech, I think about, it's true, I, it is, let's take the ageism thing, because truthfully, I think of people 60 and older as individuals who, they won't be able to keep up. Things happen so quickly in the tech industry. I mean, this is just coming from a lay person. I mean, I know as a mother of three grown sons, I turn to them for my technology information. I mean, I mean that's not my area of expertise, but it's, hey, I do want somebody who's 30 or 40 because it seems to me they, they, they are, they were born into the industry. They know all about it. They're going to, I don't want to hire somebody who's 60 or older. Well, that's, I think, the bias that's, you know, unfortunately pervasive across the United States. But the reality is that there is high tech, which is Silicon Valley, and where they lead, the rest of the technology across the industries follow. But when you talk about working uh, for a retail store, a retail company that sells shoes, uh, their tech folks don't necessarily need to be on the cutting edge of technology. They're doing database work or they're doing accounting work or they're doing HR work that all is related to technology. That's pretty much the same technology that's been around for the last, you know, maybe 10, 20 years. And the reason technology is valuable to a company or an entity or a government <clears throat> is not necessarily because you have to create the technology. It's how to implement the technology appropriately. It's the process behind the technology and the engineering and the quality that actually gives companies competitive advantage, not necessarily being able to program in the newest tool. Although if you're able to program in a tool that was created and used 20 years ago, you have the same skill set and the same ability to program and create good code in the code that's available today and with the technology today. So unfortunately, it's a bias, like you said, but it shouldn't exist because these tech workers are incredible people that have a wealth of knowledge and ability and really run circles around uh, the, young, the young people that are coming into the industry today. All right, well, let's take the uh, women and versus men, for instance. Well, the, the sexist bias, the sex bias. Well, what, what, I mean, do you think that things are changing, not just in the tech industry, but kind of overall? There's sort of a slow shift towards not being able to discriminate against women in, in lots of different areas and that that would affect what we're talking about here in terms of outsourcing technology to other countries? I, you know, I think that, I'm, I'm not sure I understand the question. So, Well, you're saying that, you know, that the, the tech industry is very biased in terms of women. You're not allowed, you know, they, they don't allow women. To, women are, traditionally are taking care of the children or taking care of older parents. They can do their work from home just as well as doing it in a, an office, for instance. But um, companies don't hire women or promote them even, I guess, because they see them, they, they would rather hire well, maybe not just necessarily hire a man, but hire somebody overseas. So, yeah, I, I think, you yeah. know, I think it's not necessarily that they don't want to hire women. I think that tech, tech companies and companies across the U.S. would love to hire women into technology positions. Um, however, 
they don't necessarily, women don't want to go into the profession because they see that their aunts or their mothers or their friends are getting laid off or not being given opportunity because they are female. So it's a question. So there's of, no accommodation made. That's what you're saying, right? And what happened is originally in the you know 80s and 90s, uh, tons of women flooded into the tech field, including me. Right? I went to the tech field because it was great, and I I could you know see the future about all the flexibility that I have be able to be able to work remotely and be able to manage work successfully because all the tools are there and available. And so that, in fact, is what happens today. There's people all over the globe that work collectively, virtually, on these teams. The issue is that we're not giving Americans an opportunity to work virtually. We're, we're taking away that, that opportunity and that flexibility, and we're instead saying, but because we can get cheaper labor outside the U.S., we'll give them that flexibility. And that's unfair to Americans, right? That's unfair to American workers. If, if foreign... Technology workers are able to work remotely. We need to enable American technology workers to be able to work remotely as well. Doesn't that all start with education? Let's talk about that. I mean, starting. Yes, certainly we've seen major shifts in education over the past 25 years. And when we look at who's, you know, enrolling in the classes and we look at who is majoring, we see a huge shift. Uh, In the book, there's quite a bit of research that's uh, indicated there about higher education in the U.S. and K-12 through education in the U.S. and the true shifts that we've seen in terms of who's getting educated, who's going into the uh, technology field. So STEM relates to science, technology, engineering, and math. Interestingly, um, because there's some flexibility in biotech research and technology research, um, and a lot of opportunities where women have been able to excel, a lot of females are going into, you know, the sciences and uh, medicine because there is flexibility in medicine, although that's kind of going away now that the big health insurers are kind of, you know, owning the doctors. That was, that's a shift in the past five years. So that's kind of going away. Um, but what we've seen is far fewer females moving in to study uh, technology in higher education, but we've also seen uh, males, American uh, males, not moving into the technology uh, area as much as they did in the past as well. So we have over a million Chinese this year alone uh, studying in the U.S. in higher education, uh, millions and millions of Chinese, and that's just from China. Um, we have other countries that come to the U.S. Again, I, in the book, I show the top countries studying in the U.S., uh, which schools have the most um, foreign students in attendance. And the foreign students are the majority uh, students studying in these uh, careers for, you know, technology, computer science, uh, engineering, electrical engineering. So what that means is, in our own American universities, we're educating less and less Americans. You know, they're not getting the slots, and they're not getting the scholarships. Um, another thing in the book that I reference is how many scholarships out of the top STEM schools uh, in the U.S. are given to foreign students and the amount. Uh, there's thousands and thousands of foreign students coming to the U.S., that are getting well over $60,000 a year in scholarship money every year, uh, every year, 2015, 2016, 2017. So not only are they taking the spots and the slots 
away from American children studying in these professions, but they're actually being paid to do so. So it's uh, very, very different than it was 25, 30 years ago in the U.S. One addition to the STEM programs, uh, I have a uh, two-year-old grandson who actually, they have STEM, obviously you know this, but STEM programs for literally babies, for toddlers, which are throughout the United States. Um, I think 18 months is uh, is the youngest, but they have incorporated these programs into, at least in the major cities, and I think in other places too, but you can take the, you know, starting with at 18 months old, you can take a, a, a STEM class or once a week or whatever it is, twice a week. Right, to engage them in learning the basics of uh, yeah. technology. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is great, right? What we want to do is we want to create a generation of Americans who don't just know how to use technology, right, who aren't just playing games and into social media, but who actually understand the fundamentals of technology so that in the future, right, we have legislators, whether they work in the technology field or not, at least they understand the basics, right, and they can make good decisions. Um, We can pass good laws and have good regulations and really, you know, create the right paradigms for our country to be successful. It's a huge task, obviously, and, um, well, you're, with your book, I guess uh, you're obviously one of the pioneers in doing this and making people aware. First of all, you have to make people aware if they're going to do anything about it, you know, the general public and also the legislators, et cetera. Uh, We only have a couple of minutes left, so I want to, in making people aware, tell us what websites we can go to access information about you, about your book, and maybe other resources that you think would be important for us to to be able to have uh, access to or to, to understand? Sure. Uh, the website is billionslostbook.com. Again, billionslostbook.com. Uh, the book is called Billions Lost, The American Tech Crisis and the Roadmap to Change, which covers how the jobs are leaving the U.S., which covers education and what we can do as Americans to kind of spark a national conversation and make things better. So if anybody can, you know, sign up for Twitter, then they can get some of the information that I post every day. So I post all kinds of, you know, just very relevant, timely articles about uh, and, and blog posts that I do just about technology in general and how it affects our children and how it affects our health and how it affects society. So uh, sometimes, you know, I've put articles on there about how, you know, staring at the blue screen affects our eyes and, you know, can potentially cause macular degeneration. So there's great information about that. There's information about kids and technology, you know, what, what's smart about kids and tech, what, what is helpful for them in this generation, how they benefit from it, and then what parents should do to kind of ensure that the children are using technology um, smartly and, and appropriately and some of the things they can do. Um, so following on Twitter, going to the you know, Facebook page. Um, but really, if anybody has any questions or information, they can always send me an email. Um, I love to you know, hear from people and their experience with technology and their children and, and how they feel about tech today. So, um, you know, buy the book, Billions Lost, is available at Amazon.com. And uh, let me know what you think and, and follow me on Twitter, and I'd love to hear from you. We'll do that. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It's Hillary Gam, Billions Lost. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is author Charita Cole-Brown, author of Defying the Verdict, My Bipolar Life. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, bipolar disorder affects approximately 5.7 million American adults. During her first semester of college, Charita Cole-Brown experienced a psychotic episode frighteningly reminiscent of her grandmother's own breakdown and subsequent hospitalization. She was later diagnosed with a severe form of bipolar disorder. Uh, Sherita Cole-Brown has a BA in English from Wesleyan University and an MAT in early childhood education from Towson University. She chronicles her personal journey with this mental disorder, detailing her struggle to accept her diagnosis and create a life full of love, hope, and success. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Charita. Nice to be here, Kathleen. Yeah, well, before we started this, actually, before we got on the air, I said, I, I've read your book. Um, it's really, it's an intimate, very intimate sort of portrayal of bipolar disorder, your personal story, um, and you really shared it from the beginning to 
I don't want to say the end. I don't know. We never know what the end is, but from the beginning. So let's start there. I mean, you're obviously you went to Wesleyan University, extremely bright young woman, uh, lots of potential, uh, but you also had a history. Your grandmother uh, was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and that was your first experience with it. So um, let's start with with sort of like with why you decided to share all of this with us? I decided to share it. I didn't share it for a very long time. I have been in recovery for more than 25 years. When In watching the incidences of people with bipolar disorder, you said there are 5.7 million people in the country diagnosed with bipolar disorder. People think that people with bipolar disorder are swinging from chandeliers and doing all kinds of chaotic things, and they don't understand that if you do the things you need to do, you can indeed live a good life with this illness. So that was why I decided that I should share Charita, why, maybe we should, I mean, I'm a social worker. Uh, yes, there are lots of professional people who do listen to the show, but maybe for the average person, bipolar disorder, which used to be called manic depressive disorder, they're not yeah. really quite sure what it means. Let's talk about just this, the, the diagnosis and the symptoms. What is it? Okay, I was diagnosed with bipolar 1 disorder. There's also bipolar 2 disorder. There's rapid cycling Bipolar 1 is what would, I guess, be called the classic bipolar disorder, which is up, down, up, down. So you vacillate between extreme elation and extreme despair. And the more incidences you have of, or episodes, as they are called, of the illness, the more severe it becomes because it's a brain-based disorder. So it's attacking your brain more and more times. When you talk about elation, extreme elation, extreme despair, what is extreme elation? What does that mean? I mean, some you know people think, well, I get elated, you know, I'm, <laughs> I just saw a great Broadway show, or but that's not what we're talking about. No, there, I wish that's what we were talking about. No, what we're talking about is being at the point where you believe that you have, for me, much more power than you ever had and everything is fabulous and nothing can go wrong and when other people are watching this behavior so people can understand extreme elation it frightens people it's not like oh this is normal you know I had a story in the book of um, coming home from college and passing out I was having a hypomanic episode and I was passing out treats on the train and, you know, wishing people a Merry Christmas. And there was a little girl who was helping me. Her mother, she asked her mother, could she help me? We're in the same car. Her mother said yes. Then I went and bought another basket of treats, and her mother, I guess, rethought that and told the little girl she couldn't help me. But it, it is because it looks frightening. It's, it's, it's out of control. It's not... Uh, Oh, I'm just so happy. It's it's an out of control state. 
So it's sort of like, and and unfortunately, I have friends and and one good friend who suffers from bipolar disorder. It's also that I can conquer the world. I can do anything, you know, and uh, and thinking that people believe that you can do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, I guess, out of control is probably a key word. But now the despair you know, we all get depressed. We all feel mm-hmm. bad. And sometimes there are crises that really make us m- more depressed than others. Uh, you know, great losses. But that's not what you're talking about. No. What I'm talking about is, in the elated phase, a complete lack of insight. And, you know, we say some people have no insight anyway. But it's a complete lack. You really don't, can't speak about what you're doing. You really don't know what's happening. You're only seeing it through your own prism and rushing forward and having a great time. You know, it was like scampering through life and having a great time. But when I got to the hospital, they said this woman is a danger to herself and others because that's how out of control it can become if it's not treated. You can have, you spend Money, lot that you don't have. Hyper yeah. can be hypersexual, uh, sexual yeah. relationships. Yeah. So it's all of that. Um, okay. Now let's describe the despair part, the other side. Now I came up with um, my own my own descriptor, and it, it is in the book of. For me, being depressed was like slogging through molasses blindfolded. Everything is thick and dark, and you can't feel your way. And if you think about the consistency of molasses, it's sticky. And so it was just a very dank, dark place. And it's a hopeless place. It's, you know, you're, you're in a place where, well, I guess, I, can I get up? It was very hard to get up and to do the things that I needed to do. And for me, the illness actually started with a depressive episode my senior year in high school. And I I pushed my way through it. But every time the depressions came, you know, they were a little worse than they had been before. So what you're talking about is both sides of the illness, because there are people who um, have bipolar 2, which is mostly depression, and some hypomania, meaning they never reach the psychotic level, which I reached in my episodes, but it's, 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 it's something that you have to accept and then learn how to balance. You actually, I mean, you were diagnosed and it began, you said, your senior year in high school, which is kind of typical for the age where um, manic depressive disorder uh, manifests itself, right? And and then you went to college uh, to Wesleyan. But I wasn't diagnosed yet. I had that depressive episode, but I was not diagnosed until um, 1980 when I was at Wesleyan. So explain, give us an example, well, talk to us about that episode when you were first diagnosed and it happened when you were in college. Yes, um, I was getting really, 
I was I had had a hypomanic episode in March, and then in December I had a manic episode. I was in school and I was planning to stay at my. I was planning to stay at at church at my. I was in a, I went to a congregation in Connecticut, and I was going back to stay at my pastor's house to spend my intercession there. So they got me back home, and I don't believe they expected me to come back. But my mom said to me later, when I I did go back to Connecticut, my mom said to me later that she thought with me being an adult, and also you have to take into consideration that she was raised by an actively bipolar parent, and there was a little denial there too. She thought that I had to make my own decision. So I went back, and I ended up at um, Connecticut Valley Hospital, which used to be called the Connecticut Hospital for the Insane. Do you think, um, I've always, and I don't know if there's any statistics that bear that out, but you are um, extremely intelligent, bright. Do you think... Um, is that a plus or a minus in the, you know in terms of like how you were able to well in the end manage to get your degree even though you had a lot of uh, you know different kinds of episodes and and couldn't stay in school and uh, you know back and forth but you had this sort of you know you were so uh, capable, I guess, intellectually and talented and, and uh, theater. You were involved in theater. Was that helpful, do you think, that makes it easier or does it make it more difficult, more painful? I think one of the things that was most helpful for me was I attended the Park School of Baltimore, which is a progressive school. Um, it's a would be a prep school in Baltimore County. And the tagline for Park is learn to think. They've, now they call it um, individuals, individual discovered, but it was learn to think back then. And the one thing that you learned at Park was that even if you didn't like your experience, you learned that it wasn't about regurgitation of information. It was about thinking things through, processing them, and coming up with what worked for you or what you thought. And that you didn't have to think what everybody else thought. You just had to be able to give a cogent argument for why you thought the way you did. So for me, for a little while, I was just kind of going along. But eventually, I got to the point where I put my park school skills into practice, I had had a three-year remission from 1983 to 1986. And when I had, during that remission, I was doing everything that I was being told to do. I was going to the doctor regularly, the psychiatrist, the therapist, um, taking my medication, everything that they were telling me to do, and then I had an episode. So when that was over, I decided I don't want to live this way if possible. I want to, if I can, change the severity and frequency of these episodes. So I went back to a therapist that I had seen in the past. 
he was a pastoral counselor. And we basically, for two years, turned over every psychic rock. And when, if he wasn't on vacation or I wasn't on vacation, I came every Tuesday and we talked about whatever topic I came up with so that we could work my way through this. And I've been, you know, basically healthy since then. I had one glitch when I had a surgery that threw my medication off. Um, but all we had to do, my, I had to go into the hospital overnight so that they could give me a sedative. And then my psychiatrist medicated me out from home. So I was okay. So you're talking about a lot of perseverance. I mean, you're talking about the two years of therapy. Um, I mean, and many people just don't, unfortunately, aren't able or don't, or maybe they are able, but they don't do that. They drop out of therapy very often, stop taking medication, stop going to therapy, um, and then, of course, wind up with major episodes. So that's Mm -hmm. really critical. Would you say, Charita, that there were people in your environment that helped you that to, to be able to to do that. Uh, I know religion was a big part of your mm-hmm. <laughs> life at that time anyway, when you wrote the book, or, you know, in, yes. in the book. Um, how important well, was, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I cut you no, off. That, I needed to ask yeah, a question. Well, how important, well, first of all, who support, I know you had siblings, parents, et cetera, but, and also the church. So did all of those, did they hinder, did they help, or what was the impact on them for you to be able to do what you have done and um, what you've been in recovery for 25 years? That's a long time. Yes. I'll I'll answer family first. I have a magnificent family, and that's not an exaggeration. They are so supportive of me. Um, My late aunt, who I wrote about in the book, she was my grandmother's sister. My grandmother was bipolar. My great aunt was not. In our family, we have many instances of people who have suffered severe depressions or bipolar disorder. What my aunt did for me was, you know, I called it... um, Wednesdays with Aunt Nellie. I went over to her house every Wednesday, and we would just sit and talk. But she made sure that I was grateful for the advancements in medication because there was no lithium many years ago. And she made sure I understood that what she understood, that everybody did not respond to lithium, and I was very fortunate because I did. And in more recent times, I've had to stop the lithium because it affected my kidneys, but I was able to take it for 30 years, and there was a medicine, another medicine that I could, you know, relate to. But my Aunt Nellie was wonderful. My mother did not talk about mental illness, and I understand that she didn't because I think it still is hurtful. And I've talked to her some since I've been writing the book. And she's going to read the book. She's read a little bit. She's read sections of the book, but she hasn't read the whole thing. I gave her a few parts of the book when we when I was writing it. So that's that's the family part. My oldest sister can tell if I'm getting manic just by my voice on the phone. So you know, I have people that are really 
creating a circle around me and paying attention to what's going on with me. I so have you're very connected to, to your family. Me. Very so connected. that's been a marvelous thing. Yeah. And then you had asked about the role of religion. Yeah, the role, yeah, because that, that stands out in the book. Yes. Now, the thing about religion, I was raised a wonderful little Catholic girl, and then I joined the Apostolic Pentecostal tradition. And some of the things that were done weren't healthy for me. For instance, you know, I, I had said that I pursued theater. I did improvisational theater as a very young woman at 17 and 18. I was doing improvisational theater in Baltimore City. And, you know, theater, improvisational theater looks like it's chaotic, but it's actually very, very controlled. You have to do exercises. You have to be ready. You have to be familiar with the people you're working with and off of, you know, what people's strengths, et cetera, are. So I was used to that controlled kind of thing. And the thing with the mania was that that scared me. Well, fast forward to the fundamentalist church I joined At that time, and we're talking about 1979, 1980, they didn't believe in pursuit of theater. Now, it's changed in a lot of churches now, but back then, that was not something that was acceptable. So what I did was cut myself off from my root of nourishment. I didn't realize that theater was my root of nourishment. So I cut myself off from that, and instead I swapped it out for spiritual anesthesia. And I will tell people, that is not healthy. Now, um, having God and loving God, and that helped me to get better. As I said, I went to a pastoral counselor, and we used um, regular therapeutic techniques as well as the use of scripture, because he was a pastoral counselor. So when I, came, when I finally got well, we used all of those things. But the, the loss of theater was very hard for me because theater nourished my spirit. And I, you know, I, hadn't, I was so busy just trying to do everything that people told me to do. And the other thing was um, extended fasting, and I don't do extended fasting anymore. Um, extended fasting actually triggered episodes because, you know, the, the bipolar is brain-based, and I never knew that I needed to eat. So, you know, I might be able to not eat for a day, but I can't not eat for three days or have this really strident schedule for or strict schedule for like a month because it affects the chemistry of my brain. Yeah. So in order to keep it, it, really, you're talking about balance, it seems to me. Yeah. Good sleep well, eat well, lead as, as balanced a life as you can, and obviously take your medications. I also want to, I mean, you, you, you uh, married, um, but your husband died. You have, what, two daughters? Yes, two beautiful women. Two beautiful daughters. And, uh, for those two beautiful daughters, I mean, do you talk to them? Well, obviously, now you've written the book, but uh, about your experiences, I mean, there's still stigma attached to mental illness, um, not yes. like it was when you in the 80s when you were diagnosed. But, uh, you know, how does that impact on, let's say, your daughters, your family? Um, well, 
the, the thing I'm going to address, before I address my daughters, I'm going to address the stigma. Um, I do, in our own voice, speaking presentations for NAMI. And as a black Christian woman, there is still a lot of stigma in minority and Christian communities because black women are expected to be strong. Christian women are expected to pray. <laughs> and a lot of times people really don't understand that there are other things that you need to do. And so for me to write this book, it's a little scary, but it's important because people can look at me and see how well I am doing and know, you know, you can, you can acknowledge this, this illness. You can acknowledge it. And then you can go on and do what you have to do. Because there are people that get sicker because it's like, what are people going to think about me? Now, for me, I didn't talk about the illness, but I was getting treatment all along. I just didn't tell people. And for me, in writing the book, it was like, okay, am I going to, you know, I, it came to me to write this book in 2009, and I actually started writing it in 2012. And I completed a draft in 15, and now it's coming out in 18. But it was, it was very difficult. One of my daughters, you asked how my daughters felt about this, one of my daughters read an early draft of the book, and I remember her saying, Mommy, I don't know you at all. <laughs> you know, because her mother is, is who her mother is. Now, both of them, their names are Liana. Liana is 28, Anita is 27, and they're very supportive of what I am doing. They're very supportive of me coming out and putting my story out into the world. And, you know, for me with my story, what is different than some of the other stories that we have seen books written about bipolar is that most of the books written about bipolar are written by white women. There are a few by white men. There is one excellent book by a woman with bipolar two called Bipolar Faith by Dr. Monica Coleman. But other than Monica's book, I think mine is the, the next one, and I have Bipolar One, written by a person of color. And there's well, a wonderful that, I... book written by an Iranian woman of color who wrote a book. But people need to understand that this does not just impact um, Caucasian people. Well, we and have 30 seconds left, and you, you, I think, have made that point, which is very obviously a, an important point. I just want to be, because we have to get off the air, make oh, sure yes, that I mention, well, I want to, t- Defying the Verdict, My Bipolar Life. You can buy the book on Amazon, uh, hopefully bookstores everywhere. I recommend it. It's a, a really... Uh, it's it's just a sort of inspiring, I would say, an inspiring story. And thanks so much for sharing that with us, and, and particularly today. And it's Charita Cole Brown, Defying the Verdict. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. I- 
We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.